Welcome to the Driven by Prevention podcast by the Merck Animal Health Swine Team. Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare, productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. Good afternoon. Welcome to the fifth webinar in the Science Talks series sponsored by Merck Animal Health. I'm Kevin Schultz, Senior Staff Writer at National Hog Farmer, and I will serve as the moderator for today's discussion, which will be centered around understanding porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome nomenclature and the classification systems and diagnostics we use to define PERS viruses. I'm joined today by two PERS experts, Drs. Kim Vanderwall and J.Q. Jang. Dr. Vanderwall is an assistant professor in the Department of Veterinary Population Medicine at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. She is a disease ecologist and epidemiologist who has worked extensively on understanding viral evolution and the transmission of pathogens in animal populations. Dr. Zhang is an associate professor and virologist in the Virology and Molecular Diagnostic section at the Iowa State University's Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. He has extensive experience in classical virology and molecular diagnostics of veterinary viruses, including PERS. Thank you both for being here today and helping to shed some light on better understanding the different ways we classify PERS. And with that, uh, let's dive right into it. Can you provide a brief overview on the different classification systems used to describe PERS viruses, RFLP, genotype, lineages? As you know, PERS include two genotypes, type 1, also called European types, and type 2, also called North American types. Nowadays, distribution of type 1 and type 2 PERS is worldwide. However, in North America, the type 2 PERS is dominant. For example, based on some you know, testing data at the ICU-VDL from 2010 to 2016, among the PERS PCR-positive samples, roughly 95% were positive for type 2 PERS, 3% were positive for type 1 PERS, and about 2% positive for both type 1 and type 2 PERS. So currently, the classification system for both type 1 and type 2 PERS is mainly based on OF5. For type 1 PERS, four subtypes have been, have been identified. Um, for the type 2 PERS, the term subtype has not been used. In contrast, the term RFLP and phylogenetic lineage have been used. So today we are going to focus on classification system for type 2 PERS. Now you reference RFLP. Uh, what does RFLP stand for? So RFLP stands for Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism, which is a mouthful. But essentially um, what this means is that we look within the OR5 portion of the genome, which represents only 4% of the entire genome of PERS. But essentially if we look within that um, portion of the genome, what um, this classification method is based upon is um, digestion by restriction enzymes. So three different restriction enzymes are used for this, um, and each of them looks for a short pattern of nucleotides within the sequence. And when it finds that pattern within the sequence, 
it basically digests or cuts the, um, the DNA fragment into two subsequent fragments. So that's um, what the system is based on. It's, it's where those cuts occurs, where the lengths of those pieces that result from the digestion by restriction enzymes. And um, we assigned a three-digit code based on where each of these restriction enzymes cut within the OR5 portion of the genome. Now, JQ, can you describe how an RFLP is determined for a particular PERS virus? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, for PERS, the RFLP, this term was introduced in the middle 1990s. At that time, RFLP was used to differentiate vaccine viruses from the wild type viruses. But nowadays, people do not rely on RFLP alone to differentiate the vaccine viruses from wild type viruses. Regarding how to determine the RFLP patterns, as Kim already mentioned, it depends on the cutting pattern of three restriction enzymes. For PERS, these three restriction enzymes are MLU1, the HINC2, and SEG2, three enzymes. And I'd like to maybe add to that, that one reason that in the mid-90s this system was developed, it's partly as, as JQ said, was to differentiate uh, the field viruses from the, the virus that the um, modified live uh, vaccine was used for. But um, one of the other reasons that this was used instead of sequencing is that sequencing was very expensive at that time. And so this method uh, was a way to look at potential genetic differences across these viruses without having to go fully into sequencing. Of course, we sequence now and then just predict where these, these restriction enzymes bind these days. Um, but that's why this method was originally uh, favored in the 90s. JQ, can you describe how sequencing is performed on the PERS virus? Yeah, sure. So first, let me briefly uh, give you all a review about the sequencing technology. You know. Back to 1970s, the first generation sequencing technology was developed. At that time, it included two technologies, one called the Maximum Gilbert method, another is the Sang method. But quickly, the Sang method became widely accepted. So that's why nowadays, when we talk about the first generation sequencing technology, people generally just refer to Sang method. For the Sang method, you have to use the pathogen-specific primers to determine it. And from the 2005, uh, the next generation sequencing technology, is also called the second generation sequencing technology, became available. There's a different platforms. And uh, later on, the third generation sequencing technology even becomes available. So for both of these, uh, Second and third generation sequencing technologies, you can use the random primers for that purpose. So that's why this new sequencing technologies is very useful to determine the large genome sequences and also is a powerful tool to identify some unknown pathogens. So back to PERS for the OF5 sequencing by the Sang method. So the general procedure is like this. You first use uh, upstream primers and uh, downstream primers cover the OF5. Then you can perform the RT-PCR to amplify this fragment. And then after purification, you can send this uh, PCR product to the DNA facility for the sequencing. 
After we get that the raw sequence data, our sequencing technician will check the quality of the sequence data and then assemble it into a contig sequence. After that, you can predict the RFLP patterns, you can determine its sequencing homology to another virus strain, you can also do the phylogenetic analysis to build up the dendrogram, you know, and then you can determine its lineage. So this is for the OF5 sequencing by the Sang method. Occasionally, we need to do the whole genome sequencing. Then you can use the next generation sequencing technology. For that one, you know, nowadays, um, it's uh, not so expensive. It's about uh, 300 bucks and uh, turnaround time about uh, two to four weeks. That is another option. So I, I, I'd like to add to that, um, that when we talk about most of the sequencing we do, which is the Sanger sequencing, um, is that it's producing one consensus sequence from the sample. So the sample is typically taken from an animal or potentially a pooled sample from a number of animals. And the viral population that's in that sample is, is already a little bit diverse because there's more than one virus in there. And as soon as, even if it started with just a single virus, as that virus um, replicates, there's an introduction of potential mutations and substitutions to the genetic sequence. So already a sample represents some sort of mix of viruses. Sometimes we say there's a, a swarm of mutants within that sample. And what the Sanger sequencing method does is it will come up with one consensus sequence from all the diversity in that sample, and it calls this is the sequence that is in this sample. So, so I think that's also an important thing to keep in mind when we look at these, um, these outputs from, from sequencing. Will Sanger sequencing be able to identify multiple yet distinct per strains within a sample? Uh, I will say the answer is yes, but not always, you know. So we do have um, some cases that's just a regular O5 sequencing protocol by Sanger method. We are able to identify the two viruses in one sample. The answer is yes there. But uh, again, I said uh, sometime, you know, the veterinarians um, suspect there's a water type virus there, but when we do the sequencing, we only identify the vaccine virus, you know. So those uh, we have tried uh, a new technology called uh, CLEP-PCR. Uh, we were able to identify the water type virus from some samples, but not all of the samples, very few samples. So that's why here is the question whether you truly have the two viruses there <laughs> or not, you know. So that is the limitation of the uh, Sanger sequencing. And we actually, uh, my students are doing another project, you know. So we want to see if uh, NGS have the better capability to identify the mixed infection in one single sample. Mixed infection, I'm talking about more than one virus per strain, you know. There and we manually mix this, each of the vaccine virus with 20 field uh, isolate. And then we want to see if uh, this NGS can do that again, that I do not have the data yet, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I think that these, you know, more advanced and uh, newer sequencing technologies are clearly going to be needed to de detect mixed infections from a single sample. The yeah. flip side of this coin is, is maybe it's not mixed infection within a single sample, but within the population. So within the farm, there are multiple strains that are circulating, maybe not in the same animal, but within mm -hmm. the same population. So. So part of this, I think, um, is important is to potentially submit more than one 
sample from different animals or different rooms in your farm to, to better understand, well, is there just one virus circulating or there's multiple? And the other um, piece to that is actually to do different um, time periods because you'll see these different dynamics where one week you'll get um, this virus and maybe two weeks later it's, it's the other one, but the other one was always there, it was just not detected or it was just there at very low levels. So, but if you, you know, tempor temporally spread your sampling a little bit, you're more likely to, to capture the ebb and flows of these different viruses if there are more than one um, strains circulating on the farm at once. Today's Driven by Prevention podcast is brought to you by Circumvent G2. Circumvent G2 has withstood the toughest test there is, time. Circumvent G2 provides the monumental protection herds need in the ever-evolving fight against circovirus. Find the protection you need at drivenbyprevention.com. Now, lineages were mentioned. Uh, Kim, can you explain the classification system originally described by Leong and others? Sure. Uh, so, in around the, right around 2010, Leong and others pro uh, proposed an alternative classification scheme to RFLP types. RFLP types have a, a number of ambiguities in their interpretation, and this was an attempt to actually uh, utilize more of the information in the sequence data to come up with a, a better or potentially improved scheme for classifying PERS type 2. So we're still talking about PERS type 2 here, which is North American PERS, and we're still talking about just the OR5 region of the genome, which is, as we mentioned before, just 4%. But um, essentially what this method does is it constructs phylogenetic trees, uh, basically showing how all of the different viruses are related to one another. And then once we have these trees built up, we can kind of um, define ancestral families of viruses. So groups of viruses that have ancestral relationships with one another. So essentially we're saying that these viruses are, are relatively closely related to each other. So in their paper in 2010, they originally defined nine lineages for PERS type 2. And each of these lineages, the, the genetic distance between them uh, was greater than around 10%. So they're, they're fairly different from one another. Um, and this, these, within these lineages, they, they also defined a number of sublineages. So these are within, for example, lineage one, we can define different subgroups within, within that. So when we actually analyze these trees, we can actually backdate when we think the origin of these different lineages were. And it's estimated that these different lineages diverge from each other pre-1992. So this is essentially at the very dawn of what we knew about PERS in the U.S. These families or these, these lineages represent diversity that was present very early on when PERS was first discovered in our pig populations. And much of the diversity we see today is uh, diversification from those original lineages. We also know that for, in different parts of the world, different lineages seem to be more common. Um, but even within single regions in the US, we see a large amount of diversity. So in the region that we do a lot of our work, we see five different lineages co-circulating all at the same time. Is this classification system still valid today? Still applicable? Yeah. So. I will say we probably needed to update this a little bit. Let me explain a little bit. You know, as Kim mentioned, that uh, 
Leon and Shi et al. they proposed this type 2 post-linear system back to 2010. At that time, they initially used about 8,000 of five sequences. And then in around 2013 and 2018, uh, they have another publication and they used uh, 5,000 more sequences. So totally about 13,000 of five sequences have been used. So nowadays, of course, we have more of five sequences. I think it will be good to revisit and see if those nine-inch nine system needed to be updated or not. We wanted to see if there's any additional linches or not. That is one point. Second point is that, uh, you know, they initially proposed a 37 sublinage system, but that sublinage system has not been widely accepted and used. But each lineage has a genetically diverse system. We need to have some sublinage systems. But now, I think it's time to revisit and then propose some um, sublinage system that can be more practical and user-friendly. So that's my point about this. I think that's a big next frontier for using a lineage-based system because, as JQ said, right now a single lineage is too diverse to really track epidemiological patterns, and the sublineages that that were originally defined are are just um, well. First of all, we need to revisit them, and second of all, they're they have not been adopted, and we don't have yeah. a standard naming scheme. So, so we need to do more work as an industry, I think, in in trying to better define sublineages within this classification system. Yeah, we do not have a well-defined uh, reference sequences for those sublineage systems. Exactly. So Kim, as you look at your current dendrograms in recent years, what is the prevalence of different uh, PERS lineages circulating in the U.S., and how broad are these dendrograms per lineage? Sure. So our analysis has been focused on a single swine-dense region, so we know very well what is, has been going on in that uh, region for, for the past 10 years. And so this is the same region where we see five different lineages co-circulating at the same time throughout this about 10-year period that we have. And if you look at the, the phylogenetic tree that we have, um, one of the, the most obvious patterns that you first notice is that uh, lineage one is by far the most common lineage that we find in this region, and I think that holds true for the whole U.S. Um, so in this, this tree that you're looking at, we have the phylogenetic tree on the left. And just for your reference, if you're more familiar or comfortable with RFLP types, along the right side, we list the um, most prevalent RFLP types found within the different lineages, just to kind of contextualize where these lineages fall with the RFLP types that you may be more used to uh, referring to. So um, within this region, uh, lineage one accounts for around 80% of all sequences that were submitted. And these are sequences that have been submitted by uh, production systems as part of their routine, routine health management. And so we see that by far lineage one is the, the most prevalent. And then within lineage one, we see that the, the most common sublineage is the, what we call L1A. Um, this is not a universally accepted sublineage because, as we said, that, that we don't have a universally accepted sublineage nomenclature. But for this purposes, we've called this the L1As, which is largely 174 RLP type viruses. And um, what we know about 
these particular viruses is that they rapidly emerged in the U.S. They appeared right around 2014 and then rapidly became by far the most common virus that was being sequenced by these systems. But also interestingly, prior to, prior to this, you know, about 2014 period where we saw this emergence of a new sub-lineage, uh, we saw this sequential turnover of other lineages and sub-lineages. So our data goes back to around 2009, and back then um, the dominant sub-lineage was, was lineage 9. And that rapidly disappeared in around 2010 and 2011, these lineage 1 viruses really started to, to take over. So we see this kind of dynamic where the, the, the most important or the most successful lineages um, in propagating the U.S. swine industry have changed through time. So my group has also analyzed um, some OR45 sequence data at the ICU-VDL. We analyzed over 40,000 OR45 sequences from 2003 to 2018. So I have one slide to show you that from there you can see that um, so the very few sequences belong to lineage 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7. Majority of the sequences belong to the lineage uh, 1, 5, 8, and 9. These are consistent with um, Kim's analysis. But regarding the percentage, and uh, our you know, lineage 1 percentage is about 60%. It's a little lower than your 80%. <laughs> And our lineage 5 is about 25%, uh, lineage 8 about 9%, and lineage 9 about 4.5%. And then if you look at this lineage 1, 5, 8, and 9 over years, because earlier I talked about this percentage, the overall total numbers from 2003 to 2018. Now if you look at the over years, each year the lineage 1 has more sequences compared to other lineages. So I also agree with Kim that um, for the lineage 9, our lineage 9, you know, at each year percentage is lower than lineage 1. But uh, you can see that there's a trend of gradually decline for the lineage 9. In the past a few years, there's a few and fewer lineage 9 sequences. The kind of cutoff that was used then was around 10 to 11 percent. So the, the differences between viruses, different lineages, we'd expect to be at least 11 percent. Now, that definition is starting to be, you know, questioned or discussed more because we see these really large diverse lineages like lineage one. And we see a lot of diversity within that lineage. So um, I've described a little bit about how we have these different sub-lineages that we've identified within lineage one. And if we actually look at this, the inter-sub-lineage diversity, so the differences between two different lineages within, or sub-lineages within lineage one, we see that, that they're up to 11% difference. So already within lineage one, these sublineages are already meeting the definition that was originally used to define whole lineages. My group is still analyzing the data for that uh, lineage one, as I mentioned, uh, we are an analyzing over 60,000 or for five sequences. I do not have that uh, <laughs> result yet, you know. But based on some preliminary analysis, about 2,000 sequences for the lineage 1, actually we observed roughly about 16% uh, differences within the lineage 1. So that's why we have been emphasizing that uh, maybe we needed to revisit this lineage system and uh, refine this. Kim, do you ever see one RFLP crossover across different lineages and sublineages? 
Uh, yes, we do, and this is one of the the hardest and the largest challenges about the interpretation of RFOP types. Um, because they don't actually look at the full sequence or the full OR5 sequence, um, and it's only looking at these specific segments, as one point mutation within the OR5 region of the genome can actually change the RFLP type if that point mutation occurs within the sequence that the restriction enzyme is looking for. So if that mutation occurs, then all of a sudden that restriction enzyme will no longer create that cut in the genome, and that changes the RFLP type, and one could interpret it as, wow, this is a completely different virus, and really it's just a single point mutation. So this is one of the things we have to be careful about when we talk about RFLP types. So for example, if we look at um, this tree of 174 viruses, so this is all within a pretty short time period, within a pretty short or a pretty small area, we can see from the tree that these viruses are all very closely related to each other. But you see, yes, most of them are counted as 174s, but at the same time, you can also see that um, occasionally you get a virus that now has a different RFLP type. Now the flip of this can also occur. So if we look back at the, the phylogenetic tree um, that we were examining before, where we have the, one, or the RFLP types down the, the right side of the, the graphic here, we see that, that some RFLP types do appear in quite dissimilar parts of the tree because for whatever reason, they're similar where the cut patterns occur, but they have significant genetic variation other places. So you can see, for example, in this case, we have the, um, the 142s and the 144s where they, you can see these RFLP types pop up in several different lineages or sublineages. So now we have a situation where if we look at the RFLP types, it says, hey, this is the same virus. But when you actually look at the genetic data or a phylogenetic tree, you see, well, actually, these viruses aren't very closely related. That concludes part one of this week's episode. Be sure to stay tuned for part two, which will be broadcast in two weeks. As always, we thank you for listening and encourage you to subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.